All right, I'm Sergey Rossin. This is another episode of Media Camp. I'm super thrilled to be back here. And today we are talking to a five times startup entrepreneur, Ernst and Young's Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year. And he was named top 40 under 40 to business in Vancouver. He quit his job when he turned 40, took a gap year and traveled to 13 countries with his family, including Egypt in the middle of the revolution. He's also one of the very few CEOs I actually had on this show who loves downhill cycling. I'm super thrilled to be talking to Jason Smith, who is the CEO of a company called Clue. I'm super excited, Jason, to have you on the show. Really, really looking forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. So you you talked before about raising around with biggest founders in Silicon Valley. Talk to me a little bit about that because that's a, such an interesting interesting story with Clue. Yeah, so I mean, there's two components of that, raising the round with Bay Area investors when you're not in the Bay Area. And the other is raising it in, the, in COVID um, where there was some skepticism as to what the funding situation would look like. And I certainly went out in that particular moment, which was the heat of doubt, um, where there's um, so there's another overlay to the traditional fundraising story. But I think the beginning, you know, it uh, when you're building a company, there's a handful of metrics that really matter in the SaaS world, and if you start to hit in the right zone, you'll be able to get the meetings with the right people. Um, particularly if you can leverage your network a little bit to get the right warm introductions, and then when they see what the metrics look like and kind of get excited about the space you can carry forward. And so um, when you layered the COVID piece on top of it, I think the capital efficiency was an extra special bonus where there was concerns about how much money would be floating through the economy at different points in the year. So in our particular company, we were hitting great metrics and the capital efficiency was quite extraordinary to get to the ARR level that we're at. And that made uh, that made for getting some meetings uh, relatively um, easy, relatively. I mean, I still talked to 28 different companies. We ended up with three term sheets in four weeks. There was a super compressed cycle. That was the other mm -hmm. interesting thing with COVID. It was very, very compressed because suddenly the VCs had their schedules opened up, right? There was time. And so they could talk. And so on the one hand, that could be maybe wasting your time. But on the other hand, it meant that you could get meetings with partners and partner teams faster than you would have in the classic, I've got to schlep it down to the Bay Area and do my door to door and get into the boardroom and wait until they arrive and then come back and go to the next, uh, you know, VC. So it ended up being a wonderful process. But at the time when we kicked it off in the middle of the height of everything shutting down in March, it was, uh, it was a scary moment. Did you find that the expectations from VC have changed? They have more time, but then at the same time, they're like, well, I got up. I really want to make sure that I'm, I'm putting my limited resources into the right, into the right company, into, into the right founder with, with this, with this lockdown. So my take was no, I think they're still looking for great founders, great companies. So tech is the tech great, is the tech, is the traction excellent, and um, is the team fantastic. So they're still looking for all three of those things. I don't think that's changed at all. I think the nuance was, can I fund a company where I've never met the founder face to face? That was probably the fundamental question for a lot of them. So even though they're vectors of, um, um, viewing the value of a potential business remain the same. The team equation was the big one. When you can't look somebody in the eye, can you get to know them or not? And so they, I think there was a significantly higher uh, reliance on the network to say, oh, Sergey, we both know somebody 
what's your opinion of them? And so the third party um, network of validation was key. And then actually what I found um, the get to know you was kind of surprising. Like I'm peering behind you and looking at your bookshelf and seeing what you might read, the quote on your wall, you're doing the same for me. We've kind of been invited into each other's homes in this extraordinary way, right? And so there's a personal aspect to it that I think cut through a lot of the traditional business formality and you actually got to know people quite quickly. So um, yeah, that's what I would say. I don't think their they're, they're, they're vector of, of or their variables in terms of how they judge what's good or not have changed other than how do you do the team aspect without meeting somebody face to face. Well, I could tell when we connected the first time that you are a fan of a classic VW. <laughs> yeah, with surfboards on the top. That was that was a little memento from a trip to Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, fun. That was, that was that was. I mean, like back to your point. But I think you and we all know how important the relationships between the founders are. And I think you had a really good story to tell where you went through this incredible grind trying to find the right co-founder, technical co-founder, and just oh, yeah. I think that that relationship was very interesting. I just thought you'll, you can share that, how that panned out. Yeah, particularly for anybody that's listening that is um, either recently founded a company or is looking um, to start a company and they have uh, the debate of who their co-founder is. Yeah, I learned a thing or two on that one. I had, um, look, when you have an idea and you're really keen to bring it to this world and you're not the person that can actually do the development, you need a technical co-founder. And that's what I needed in my case. And um I did a lot of dating, you know, I did a lot of um, coffees, like hundreds of them with different folks. And then you start down the path with a couple of them. And then I narrowed it down to somebody that I thought was excellent and turned out um, he was an amazing developer, actually an extraordinary developer, 10 years experience, very fast, very smart. And I was sitting side by side with this person for um, months, basically paying them to try and build enough of a prototype that we could maybe go get some angel money. And the, um, the Friday when we had actually finally decided this should be the share split, this is how much you should get, I should get, and we kind of shake hands and it's done. Um, he comes in on the Monday and says, so I have something to tell you. And I said, well, what? We're excited. We just high five. We're starting the company. It's official. We've been working side by side for months. Here's the split. Yeah, I'm going to New Zealand for three months and, um, and I'm going to leave in two weeks. And I just thought you should know. And it was one of those moments where you've got this business that you just want to get off the ground and you've got the super talented developer that you've been working with but it's something that they didn't share with you in the discussion of what should be the founder split. And what I learned was trust is the most important thing when you start a company with a founder. Um, founder breakups are really one of the major reasons why companies fail. So trust is paramount. And when I suddenly said, can I live with this? Can I live with this? That's probably fine that he didn't tell me. But when you flip it around and you say, I wouldn't have done that, if I were in his shoes, I would have had that discussion ahead of, you know, an equity split discussion and all the way through, then you realize you're going to doubt things from that point forward. And, um, and literally the next day I cut it off and put clue on the shelf and said, I guess we'll go find something else and went back to the drawing board to find my founder and ultimately found a fantastic co-founder again through the network where when we started to look at each other on LinkedIn, we had 178 overlapping connections and he was coming out of his thing at Sophos and 
so many people are telling him to meet Jason as the business guy. And, and I was getting told to meet this guy, Sarathy from as the tech guy. And, um, and, you know, we hit it off. And um, ever since it's been built on trust and um, independent complementary skill sets that have made it work. It's just having that, uh, that really high accountability bar that you have to filter people through, right? That does take sometimes time. Sometimes you get lucky, but sometimes you have to go through this painful process where you kind of thought one person met it, but then they didn't. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you got to hold your end of the bargain, right? And so that was the tricky part though. Um, exceptional developer, like doing his part of the bargain wonderfully well. And um, that part was great. It was the trust piece. Honestly, it was, if we're going to sit side by side and grind together for years, because everything's an overnight success for 10 years, it is a long time. You got to trust that person. And that became very clear to me that despite them being exceptional in what my uh, weakness would have been, development, um, I could not trust that there might be something behind the scenes that he's not telling me. And if the minute that's in your brain, every conversation from there on in, you'll have this little skepticism and you just can't have that fly in the ointment when you're building a business. You have to have complete trust. So accountability and um, doing your job 100%. It's almost a given. I just think the trust thing is slightly overlooked because you just want to get going. You're a dev. I'm a business guy. Awesome. Let's roll. No, let's make sure we trust each other completely and have that reliance so that we can build a foundation for a big company. Do you think there are other areas, Jason, where they're a must in terms of not having a misalignment in vision from the two co-founders? Besides, you have the trust, you have the accountability. What are some of the yeah. areas that you would put in that category? Well, so just just picking up on the what are the other maybe even reasons why things I've seen blow up and it's um, a lot of ego is a major reason. And so often people aren't super explicit about what they want um, to do in the future. So if we're both maybe technical people or we're both business people, um, maybe we both want to run it, but we're not either of us are saying it because it feels too egotistical to say, I'm going to be the CEO and you're going to be this. And it's just this, so you kind of ignore it and you don't talk about it. And usually that will bubble up in very subtle ways. So if you become the natural face for the company, then I might hold some resentment, Sergey, to you because you're right. the natural face. And, and so, but that's going to just be coming out with me digging my heels into things that I shouldn't, and it slowly decays the relationship. So you need to be very clear about your role and like what's going to happen. Um, so you're CTO, I'm CEO, or however the split's going to be. And frankly, if uh, I'm going to be a, uh, a VP of sales or something and somebody else should be CEO, you've got to kind of have those discussions early, um, particularly if you're trying to build something big. You know, I think if it's a lifestyle business, you might be able to get away with it a little longer. But if you're trying to build a venture back business, you need clarity on who owns what North now and as it moves forward in the future. I know uh, I've read, uh, I don't remember which book that was, but it talked about CEOs and it compared CEOs to athletes where you, they're, they're so specific, they're so particular about how they consume their energy, where they don't waste their effort because there's so much, so much, so many things to do. And I know you're a fan of uh, Navy SEAL analogy of being a founder. <laughs> I thought this is a, this was an interesting point for us to talk about. I, you know, I, I, uh, 
I think there's a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs because it looks sexy on the outside. And even as an entrepreneur, as a five-time entrepreneur, I sit there reading TechCrunch thinking I'm failing as an entrepreneur. Everybody <laughs> else is crushing it. And so it's, it's really easy to fall in love with the idea of what being an entrepreneur is. But the cold hard reality is, um, you know, there's people that go through um, Navy SEAL training and become Navy SEALs. And there's people that just realize one day in that they're not going to be that and they should be behind the scenes. And so um, I think it's not just true of the founders and the entrepreneurs. It's true of the early stage team. You want people that want to be the Navy SEALs that have gone through the pain that actually can say and look you in the eye of, yeah, I'll go in and do that. And you just feel the grit beneath the surface that they're going to do it versus people that say they're going to do it, but are more posing about it and saying like that, that's something, yeah, I'll get in there, but they don't have the grit and the wherewithal to go through it because it's grindy. There's no question it's grindy and you kind of have to like the grind and something about seals, they like the grind, but they like the accomplishment afterwards as well. So um, everybody loves the accomplishment. It's the grind part that you have to take this perverse pleasure in of, um, yeah, um, it's making me a little stronger. Where's, where, where's the depth of my testing fortitude wise that, you know, I'm going to break. And so I love the Navy SEAL analogy versus the people that are sitting in the office barking at the orders to the SEALs. You know, there's a point when the SEALs will turn that off and just do their thing. Keyboard warriors. Keyboard warriors. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was from, uh, Gary V. He always comes <laughs> up with this catchy I lines. like it. I like it. But it's it's also true where I think I've heard from from other folks where Navy SEALs are like also humans, like you can't just order them. They're not robots, but like you have to actually talk to them and like convince them that this is the right thing to do. Um, and to your point, it's it's also just having um, people who know that that's the right thing for them. They're like built for it. Well, and this is it. I think if you are a Navy SEAL, you know it. Um, if you're not, and you're thinking about going into training, you don't know. And if you're a first time entrepreneur, you don't know if you're going to make it through that training and become a Navy SEAL. You don't know if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, but I think there's little signals that you can look for and the ability to bounce back on rejection repeatedly is a key one. The grit is a major area, the drive to get it done and remove obstacles. So you look for those patterns in your life. Athletes, you know, see a lot of that. They get up and they'll practice every day and they'll put a hundred hours of practice in for one hour of game time. And so that's kind of like the performance of an entrepreneur. You've got to put a lot of practice in for all the stuff behind the scenes for the one hour of glory that might live in TechCrunch, right? So there's just this, there's so much work behind the scenes. So I don't think, you know, look, if people that are experienced and you talk to a Navy SEAL, you're like, man, that person's got some stuff. She's incredible. And then you've got these others that are just starting and you just don't know. So you just have to, you have to see where that test is going to be. And some people can climb the mountain, some people can't, but you got to go into it going, this is going to hurt. And I'm, I'm okay with that. It's not just going to be the glory of entrepreneurialism. It's going to be day by day grindy and people are going to ask me what I'm doing and I'm not going to have the money that I used to in some other job. And, and I'm just, I'm going to see this through and I'm going to build it step by step. And in the moment, you never feel like you're making the progress. It's just annually or quarterly, maybe you look and you go, oh, right. Yeah, we did. We did make a big step there. Celebrate that for a moment, right back to work. It's so interesting how you don't feel any change when in the moment you're doing it, you, it feels like it's, you're completely like static. 
and then you you only can look at you only can measure it looking backwards so true and you have to take pleasure in the moment that way right you have to it's again back to the training of the seal like if they're thinking about i can't wait till i'm done and drinking a coffee they're never going to get through climbing that wall and getting shot at so you have to yeah you have to be in the moment right there in the moment always and one of the ways where you start off or when you get in on the path is 100 coffees or 100 person coffees Uh, talk to me about that concept well, so I did. I did a. I did a talk um, in the past around. I, I call them cliffs and elevators, and I think it's a good analogy because I don't think startups are a, a linear kind of line that goes up. I think it's a step function. I think there are points in which you need to decide: Are you moving forwards and taking the elevator up to the next level, or is it off the cliff? And so I go all the way back to like, if you're thinking about starting a company, how much does this preoccupy your mind? And like, there's a lot of people that say like, this is just the only thing you think about. I don't think it's the only thing you're thinking about. I think it's something that you just keep gnawing on the problem and finding different ways to kind of learn more depth. You find yourself Googling and searching up what companies are doing it. And then you find some company somewhere that's doing it like, oh, it's done. And then you kind of dig a little deeper and they might not have it done at the angle that you're thinking about. And you're like, okay, maybe. And like each step of the way you're testing your resilience of whether or not this is something that you feel strongly enough about to dedicate and mentally I'd say 10 years, like dedicate 10 years. It might not be that long, but it easily could be. And so you mentally have to say, I want to, I want to dedicate a bunch of time to getting this thing. So to do that, you go through this process of investigation and each time you're going to be knocked down or strengthened in your own personal resolve. That's kind of the first step is getting through your own mind on that. The next step to me is the 100 coffee meetings with smart people. And it's just like, then you need to go and sit down with as many smart people as possible that might have some knowledge about the space or have built things before. And you need to pull out of them why your baby's ugly. And that's really hard because nobody wants to say your baby's ugly. Like, do you like my shirt? Yeah, I love your shirt. It's a great shirt. <laughs> yeah, you like my haircut? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a great hair. Nobody wants to tell you you've got a bad haircut, right? But like, you need to say, what's wrong with my haircut? Like, is there anything wrong? What? And you're looking for the challenge, um, the gaps, the things that you need to go investigate, which again, will test your resilience when you leave that meeting. If you just get the, the mom answer of, um, you're great, I back you no matter what, it just, you get this false sense of security mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. And you need, you need the honest truth before you go spend a pile of money in 10 years of your life. So this is your like 100 coffee meeting shortcut to go, am I going to spend 10 years? So you damn well better get the right answers. And to do that, you need to start the conversation with, I don't want you to sugarcoat anything. I want the blunt, honest truth about where the gaps are that I need to go investigate or learn more about. Tell me what I'm missing, not what do you think. And if you start with that, then you'll pull out the good stuff and then you'll walk away and oh, those 100 coffee meetings, you'll again, either be more resilient and you'll go to the next level of I'm going up to try and find my co-founder or the next level down. And uh, through that 100 copy meetings, you can be finding your co-founder as well. There might be discussions that lead you to the right person. But that's kind of the next Brazilian mm-hmm. stage. Then there's the co-founder find. And then there's, can you go and fence, convince investors? And it might not be VCs. It might be just friends and family. But that's the point when you need to shape your idea down to something that somebody can understand very quickly. Because most people within the first five minutes of meeting you and hearing your idea are leaning in 
or they're leaning out. And if they're leaning out at that moment, it's unlikely you're going to get the money other than guilt money. <laughs> um, you know, so, so you need to refine that pitch to nail that feeling that you can give them, that there's something there with a couple of the key data points that you've learned along the way to try and do that. And then do you get the money to be able to build what you want and, and go forward? Again, that could be, you know, 10K from family. It could be a million dollars from, you know, a broader group of angels. But there's money that you're going to need to do. Um, and that convincing right. period is the next cliff and elevator. And then I can go on and on from there. It never ends. There's so many cliffs and elevators. Well, how do you, Jason, when you're doing 100-person coffees, at what point can you ignore that the feedback that you get? Like, how do you figure out the point where, okay, I actually have to make a change. I have to pivot. This actually doesn't make sense versus, you know what? I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to go this way. What do you look for? What kind of uh, criteria or sort of signs you need to look for? When you I think it's, you know, it's obviously one of the hardest questions. It's similar to when do you shut down your company? When do you believe that it's not going to work versus that myth that you always can punch through the wall if you're the right entrepreneur? So, um, so first of all, I'd say is this is a gray zone and it's going to be a personal discovery. But what I'm looking for is just patterns, right? Like if, if a bunch of people I respect 10, 20 in a row are all saying the same thing and when I go investigate it, everything online I'm seeing is saying the same thing, then you're either going to be finding some reason to disprove them that's kind of a, a real value versus like some something in your head that is not real. And, and that's, that's the question mark. If like, you know, I know that flying cars should exist. Damn it. Everybody, no. Eh, and you're getting this feedback from everybody saying, I just, flying cars are going to be really difficult. Like physics are proving that it's a challenge. No, but everyone's going to have flying cars. Then, you know, it might be an investigation of can flying cars exist? And then also maybe, a, is it a now issue? You know, or conversely, it's something that's highly competitive. I'm going to replace my um, Salesforce. I've got this new CRM that's way better. Uh, that's going to be a challenge. So like, uh, tell me why you're different. And so if you talk to a hundred smart people, you're going to see a pattern of why they believe right. it doesn't happen. And, and that's going to lead to a further investigation, which is either going to create more ignorance on your part or look in the mere reality. You mentioned flying cars. I just remember it's uh, Nicola's CEO, just stepping, stepping down with a nice, with a really nice package. Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> No, it was a very interesting story just to look at uh, Elon Musk comments about Nikola, the Nikola CEO just hyping up the hydrogen cars. It, it's a separate conversation, but it's just so fascinating to see how you could, without the product, do the incredible PR and marketing and still pull it through. But that's not what we're talking about here. Well, there is, there is I actually, my own personal belief is there's more and more companies right now being funded without, you know, deeper due diligence. I feel like the diligence that I've, this is a personal feeling that I've seen from the venture community is less and less because the competition to find the right deals is so intense that they're moving faster without being able to do the due diligence. It's a bit like buying a house without an inspection, right? Like in a hot market, you're just going to put a no offer, you know, down for that condo or that house. But you know, in a slower market, you're going to get the inspection, realize the roof needs replacing, and you're going to knock that off the price. So uh, right now, it's actually a lot of capital chasing good ideas. And if you can generate that excitement, then um, so a bit of an aside, but the hype machine, 
is actually playing into some companies being funded that haven't been totally, I think, investigated. Tell me about uh, starting a company with no experience versus having a experience of starting a couple and moving on. What What's different? What's different from the early days to maybe couple months in, couple years in? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a good question because um, I'm kind of now in the old guard and doing five of these. And I, I can distinctly remember my first one. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest difference is, um, uh, is you've got this um, scale of um, experience on one side, um, naivete on the other. And Sometimes it's really helpful to be a bit naive about something because you don't see all of the monsters and the bear traps that are going to catch you along the way. When you have too much of experience in a particular area, um, you know all the pain and you're looking at it going, I just don't know if that's going to work or if it's worth the pain, right? Like if you've done podcasts for a lot, you realize there's a lot going on and maybe you wouldn't do it again. <laughs> no, I'm not saying for you, but it is a lot no, of work, true. right? It is true. But, yes, exactly. But when you haven't done it, you're like, podcast, let's go, right? And you get into it. And so I think in the earliest stages that being slightly naive of not knowing everything about how hard it is to do is a good thing because generally you have, um, um, well, not always youth. People start companies when they're older, but um, some level of inexperience with it that says you're a problem solver, you'll figure it out as you go. But instead of stacking all 50 problems up that looks like a big wall, you just see the first bump on the road and you'll keep walking down the road and you'll jump over that one. And then the next one and the next one versus going, Oh my gosh, it's a marathon. Can I do a marathon? You're just thinking about the next row, next, next lever. So that's the first major difference. The other difference is, um, you know, now having a bunch of companies, I've got a network that can help me. And so that helped me with VC introductions that helped me with talent. You know, I had a number of people that were willing to, come on board very early that were super experienced that could have jobs that were like five times more than I could pay them but they believed in maybe what we were doing and me to some level um, and a group that we could create something bigger so they're willing to take a shot because they've been there seen that um, that's harder to do in the early days although the flip side is you're you know coming out of uni you're living on ramen and you, you know what do you got to lose right that was how my view was on my first company yeah. it's like uh, let me go for it. Who cares? If I lose, I'll go find a real job. And um, so, you know, again, just differences. But I think once you have a network, it's it's really helpful to get the right introductions, to get those hundred coffee meetings, to get the VCs, to get the talent in early that you're not paying full dollar amount for, but figuring out the equity split that can bring very clear, distinct value to different pillars of how you're building your business that's a huge, huge lift, you know, compared to um, everything else. And then you got your reputation, right? Like you're unproven before. Eh, can I trust you? Um, but you've done something before. It's, it's a night and day difference. And I've always said to early entrepreneurs, forget the VC game unless you've done it before and you've got a reputation, traction, or um, um, the team is, I've been there, done that. So they go, eh, they might figure it out. Or you got traction. If you're a first-time entrepreneur without traction, forget the VCs. You got to go to them with a big graph that says, this is what it's doing. Um, and I'm figuring this out as I go, but here's the traction. Right. So, and everybody's saying, well, I'm brand new and I don't have any traction, but it's a killer idea. And VCs have a lot of trouble backing that 
with neither traction or team there. It's, it honestly reminds me, and you touched on it, the marathon analogy. It's, uh, it's like you do it the first time. It's like, what, how hard can it be? And then you do the second time. You're like, oh my God, you have a checklist of 50 things. <laughs> like, oh my God, my leg's going to give up. I, I won't be able to. I need, I need this much water. I need this much nutrition. And then from the VC perspective, it's like, oh, what, what this guy's going to do at mile 20? Like, is he going to like speed up? <laughs> is he going to run backwards? It's uh, very similar, isn't it? That's true. And so you have experienced marathoners that know exactly what their food regime is going to be, their training schedule. But they also kind of know where they're generally going to land in you know, their, the pecking order. Are they a top 10 racer or are they middle of the pack racer? If you've never done it before, kind of the exhilaration is, could I be top 10? Like coming out of the gate? Nah, usually you're not, but you have this belief that maybe you could be. And um, that can serve you well to get over all of the, the hurdles without um, having them big in front of you. If you've done 10 marathons, you're like, okay, I'm going to do the next one. And so I know my training schedule. I'm going to have to back it up here. I'm going to have to run through the rain here. So um, again, there's this mix of experience and naivete. I think this is a good balance. You had this great thoughts about finding the right people. Uh, finding people who have the right culture fit versus folks who are driven by marketing, PR, brand, or any of the other more external things that Clue, for example, would have or any other company would have uh, maybe raise a certain amount of money, like actually you did. How do you determine it and what are your thoughts on it in general? Because I think you have some really, really interesting approach. Yeah, so I've in my career, I've I've done... Done good hires and I've done bad hires of thousands of um, thousands, at least hundreds of people over the time that I've hired, but thousands of interviews. And you get people that look good on paper and you get people that don't look good on paper and you get people that interview well and people that don't interview well. And um, ultimately what I find is at the earliest stages of a business, you need to understand the character. So this is back to trust of the co-founder, but it's the character of the person. Do they have that grit? Do they have that wherewithal to figure out how to get stuff done without somebody telling them? Are they looking around the corner? Can they see around corners in any way, shape or form or are they just waiting for the next order? And some of these super talented people that have lived in bigger businesses with this apparatus and structure around them, super smart, like Harvard educated, awesome, but they're used to the apparatus and the structure. And so like, what, I have to get my own coffee? Like, that's insane. So there's this, there's this moment of like versus the Bear grills type that is just going to figure out how to, you know, I don't know, grab a salmon out of the stream with his bare hands and cook it, you know. <laughs> you you kind of need a little more of the Bear grills in the early days. And so often those people aren't on the LinkedIn, you know, perfect resume. They're on, you're in the interview where you're trying to understand their character. Why did they make that choice to go to that particular community college instead of the university? Well, they couldn't afford it. And they had to work at McDonald's the whole time to put themselves through school. They graduated top of their class. And then they did this other, th well, that's an entirely different thing than, you know, the person that couldn't get into any other schools could afford it. So it's hard to know that until you kind of dig into it. So I think you've got to look at the character of the person and particularly the grit of how they're going to get through some of these things and see around corners to look past the resume and find those early hires. As you get bigger, you tend to need more um, specific people in specific boxes, but um, certainly sub 50, you know, I'd take the generalist bare grills, figure it out 
more than I would, you know, done well within a corporate structure in a big company like a Google that might not have, you know, the experience in the early stage. I've heard from David Cancel before when he was doing his Seeking Wisdom, I think he's still doing it now, where he talked about this interesting analogy. He talked about hiring, he did a bunch of them over his career, and he said that most of 10Xers, or I think he called it 100Xers, folks who are really, really good, they actually have very bad resumes. Like on paper, they look weird. There's something odd about them. They did some bunch of weird moves. I'm curious, like, what was, what, was there something similar you found? I think he's right. I think there's, there's, it's certainly not an always case. There's, there's some pretty bad LinkedIn and resumes that you, that are not the 10 Xers, but I think that's where you go looking for the gems. Everybody can say, you know, the comp side top of grad class from Stanford that, you know, went on and did a startup in their twenties and did this, you know, thing. Yeah. They're, they're probably got, you know, a bankable kind of trajectory, a little more there, but the one that had, yeah, the weird, resume, you just have to dig and you have to understand that character question and why they made certain life choices and how they approach different problems, how inquisitive they are to understand where they are on the, the corporate Jerry versus Bear grill spectrum. And, um, and if you can combine high intellect and curiosity with grit and drive, then you, know, you give those people the right structure to work from, they're going to figure it out faster than the people that don't have that, but maybe join the right companies at the right time and floated as all the boats floated higher with tide um, with that. So actually, conversely, I often look for people that, you know, sales, for instance, were working for those companies that weren't the tier one companies. They had to work 10x harder to actually get those deals mm -hmm. than the tier one companies. If you walk in and say, I'm Google or I'm Facebook or I'm LinkedIn, it's a lot easier business card to drop than I'm no name Acme Co. You should spend hundred K on my software for recruiting. And you're like, huh? Like if that person can sell, then they're usually, you've got a better find of a 10 Xer when you put them in the right scenario at Google, they would have hundred X it. Right. So that's, so I think David's exactly right. It's just a laborious task to sift through and try mm. and find that. Cause often it means talking to people. Although I have seen some people do brilliant hacks on trying to get jobs. And um, we actually hired somebody recently that did an amazing job that we'd passed over twice. And he was like, there's no way you're passing me over. It was a sales role. And he came back and he got our ICP clients that we were chasing that we couldn't get to take a demo from us <laughs> to send videos to us saying why we should hire this guy. like. So if he could do that and our team couldn't get them to actually have a meeting with us to look at our software, I mean, that, that was impressive. We got like five videos from different people that were saying, this is why you should hire them. And if you're not going to, I'm going to basically. And like that, that was an out of the box thought, right? So impressive. That's amazing. That, that's a 10Xer. Yeah. What, what were some other ones that stood out to you? What were some other moves? Um, so I, you know, that analogy of the people that when you hear about, um, you know, even starting back at the university level or the college level that they go to, and uh, we all have a bit of a judgment call of what school you went to, um, and you kind of, you proxy people very quickly as a result of that. But when you dig into why some of those choices were made, and that they did get into other schools, but couldn't afford it and gave it up. And then, you know, where they graduated in their class and the other things they did, and I'm using the school as an analogy, 
like then I've seen a number of those scenarios where it's like, so tell me what, like you grew up in a small farm and then what, right? And give me that life journey. And when they talk about their choices of why they had to do this, because, you know, they couldn't afford anything and they had to put themselves through and they did this thing and then they created this other thing. And then they found this other, and you just, you hear the story unravel in a way that is a choice based grit revealing um, um, uh, person that that's, that's what you want to do. You want to hire that person that obviously has some experience or skill set in what you're looking for, but that character beneath it is what I would over index on. So, you know, the university when I've had that example, I don't know how many times, like, you know, that I made the judgment call, the college they went to instead of them going to Stanford or Harvard or something. And, and then you kind of go, wow, that actually, that's amazing. Like you've had it hard and you've mm -hmm. figured it out. And you're you're off the charts on your GPA, and you're on the Mensa scale, but you did you didn't go to a top school. That's weird. So, understanding that I think is um, another example. Mm. Jason, tell the listeners about Clue because we haven't we haven't plugged in the company anywhere. <laughs> the quick plug. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, quick plug. The quick overview on Clue is um, it's competitive intelligence uh, for today companies helping their enterprise sales team. So largely what we try and do is understand everything about your competitors that we can find on the web. We combine it with what your employees actually know and are sharing inside of tools like Slack and Salesforce internally. And then we machine curate that down into kind of a manageable set and put that in front of um, product marketers and they convert that kind of machine curated Intel into real insights and put them in these digestible little embeddable cards that we float through all sorts of other tools back into Salesforce, Slack, and these other areas so that salespeople have what they need to know about a competitor in the middle of a deal. So, you know, Sergey, tell me again how you compare to. They've got that answer. Right. And then they know how to deposition and move forward in a B2B deal. Instead of a static battle card that's been done in 2015. Yeah, my biggest competitor right now is like a static PowerPoint that lives in SharePoint <laughs> that hasn't been updated in six months. But... Yeah, this is a continuously updated lens into what your competitors are doing. Absolutely. Jason, where does everybody get find you online and any resources that you'd uh, want to uh, mention? Uh, so I'm open with my email. It's jason at clue.com. If there's, um, I'm, I try to be uh, generous with uh, folks that are starting companies and try and do something at least weekly with different folks. My time is getting increasingly, we just announced a $15 million series A and and my phone number, my mobile phone number is the only one that's listed for the company. So I've had like <laughs> hundreds of phone calls over the past, you know, two weeks now having announced that. So my time's getting a little more limited, but I do try and do that to make sure that, cause I was that same entrepreneur that was trying to figure it out and just, you know, I got great advice from folks. So I definitely want to pay that forward. So Jason at clue.com is, is the best one. If you're looking to elevate your compete program, our blog has so much stuff on it. Um, for for um, figuring out how to elevate your competitive program. And then we're also starting to layer in some other things. Like I, we're putting our pitch deck, the pitch deck that I used to get our $15 million round. Business Insider did a piece on it. We're going to put that on the blog of this is what it took to put the pitch deck together. Here are the slides that really resonated. So that'll be up on uh, uh, clue.com slash blog. And then I'm also going to put... Um, um, how to amplify any funding or key announcement that you have. We figured out a couple of good LinkedIn hacks and others that will put that up there. So there'll be some entrepreneurial resources at clue.com slash blog soon too. I will link it all in the show notes. Actually brilliant marketing tactics to put the pitch deck on the website. That's, that's a great approach. 
It is a, it, a lot of people like that. I mean, our, our target market tend to be mid-market enterprise customers that aren't putting pitch decks together, but right. it's a great resource for, um, for smaller companies for sure. Absolutely. Jason, anything we have missed or any final messages you'd love to leave the audience with? You know, the only thing that I, I, I just wanted to touch on is just the importance of culture, right? So, and I've, we've hinted on it, on that trust equation with your co-founder and then finding the right people that are on the Bear grill scale on grit and, you know, the 10 extras that are beneath the resumes and actually what they have as character. That all comes together in a culture that breeds um, um, a continuous level of learning and success. And it's hard to maintain that when you get bigger. But in the early days, like it's like cement that's slowly curing on what your culture is. And so the people that you bring in that are elevating and challenging one another is what's going to set the tone for that culture that slowly gets cemented and then they bring in the next people. And so you've talked about A players hire A players, B players hire C players. It creates that downward cycle. It's true and just the, you know, it's not just the hiring, it's the mindset that people have. And if they come in with like, we'll figure out a way versus the victim of why isn't somebody doing this for me? That's not my job. Those two extremes really define your culture early. Mm -hmm. And so super important to bring the right people in and capture that flywheel effect of a positive, supportive, I think ideally transparent, be upfront with people about what you're doing so that they feel bought in. Um, but also that we can find a way and there might be a loose brick in that wall somewhere. Let me help you. And um, that culture is critical to building a foundation for a massive business. So it's got to start day one. That's a great, that's a great final message. Jason, so nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Glad to participate. All right. Take care, Sergey. This was another episode of Media Camp with Sergey Ross. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. It was so much fun to make as always. You can find all the resources, links, and books and recommendations from the guest in the show notes. You can connect with the guest as well uh, by following those links. You can connect with me on LinkedIn if we are not connected yet, and I'd love to. Like, comment, subscribe, all those things. If you see this episode on LinkedIn, if you see this episode somewhere else online, I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Media Camp. I'm out. I'll see you in the next one. Yeah.